Book One, Chapter One of Henrietta Temple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. Henrietta Temple by Benjamin Disraeli. Book One, Chapter One. Some account of the family of Armine and especially of Sir Ferdinand and of Sir Ratcliffe. The family of Armine entered England with William the Norman. Ralph de Armine was standard-bearer of the Conqueror, and shared prodigally in the plunder, as appears by the Doomsday Book. At the time of the general survey, the family of Ermine, or Armine, possessed numerous manors in Nottinghamshire and several in the Shire of Lincoln. William de Armine, Lord of the Honour of Armine, was one of the subscribing barons to the Great Charter. His predecessor died in the Holy Land before Ascalon. A succession of stout barons and valiant knights maintained the high fortunes of the family, and in the course of the various struggles with France they obtained possession of several fair castles in Guyenne and Gascony. In the War of the Roses, the Armines sided with the House of Lancaster. Ferdinand Armine, who shared the exile of Henry the Seventh, was knighted on Bosworth Field, and soon after created Earl of Tewkesbury. Faithful to the Church, the second Lord Tewkesbury became involved in one of those numerous risings that harassed the last years of Henry the Eighth. The rebellion was unsuccessful. Lord Tewkesbury was beheaded his blood attainted, and his numerous estates forfeited to the crown. A younger branch of the family, who had adopted Protestantism, married the daughter of Sir Francis Walsingham, and attracted, by his talents in negotiation, the notice of Queen Elizabeth. He was sent on a secret mission to the Low Countries, where, having greatly distinguished himself, he obtained on his return the restoration of the family estate of Armine in Nottinghamshire, to which he retired after an eminently prosperous career, and amused the latter years of his life in the construction of a family mansion, built in that national style of architecture since described by the name of his royal mistress, at once magnificent and convenient. His son, Sir Walsingham Armine, figured in the first batch of baronets under James I. During the memorable struggle between the Crown and the Commons, in the reign of the unhappy Charles, the Armine family became distinguished cavaliers. The second Sir Walsingham raised a troop of horse, and gained great credit by charging at the head of his regiment and defeating Sir Arthur Hasselrig's curiosers. It was the first time that the impenetrable band had been taught to fly, but the conqueror was covered with wounds. The same Sir Walsingham also successfully defended Armine House against the Commons, and commanded the cavalry at the Battle of Newbury, where two of his brothers were slain. For those various services and sufferings, Sir Walsingham was advanced to the dignity of a baron of the realm, by the title of Lord Armine of Armine, in the county of Nottingham. He died without issue, but the baronetcy devolved on his younger brother, Sir Ferdinando. The Armine family, who had relapsed into popery, 
followed the fortunes of the second James, and the head of the house died at St. Germain. His son, however, had been prudent enough to remain in England and support the new dynasty, by which means he contrived to secure his title and estates. Roman Catholics, however, the Armines always remained, and this circumstance accounts for this once distinguished family no longer figuring in the history of their country. So far, therefore, as the house of Armine was concerned, time flew during the next century with immemorable wing. The family led a secluded life on their estate, intermarrying only with the great Catholic families, and duly begetting baronets. At length arose, in the person of the last Sir Ferdinand Armine, one of those extraordinary and rarely gifted beings who require only an opportunity to influence the fortunes of their nation, and to figure as a Caesar or an Alcibiades. Beautiful, brilliant, and ambitious, the young and restless Armine quitted, in his eighteenth year, the house of his fathers and his stepdame of a country, and entered the imperial service. His blood and creed gained him a flattering reception. His skill and valor soon made him distinguished. The world rang with stories of his romantic bravery, his gallantries, his eccentric manners, and his political intrigues, for he nearly contrived to be elected king of Poland. Whether it were discussed at being foiled in this high object by the influence of Austria, or whether, as much whispered at the time, he had dared to urge his insolent and unsuccessful suit on a still more delicate subject to the Empress Queen herself, certain it is that Sir Ferdinand suddenly quitted the imperial service and appeared at Constantinople in person. The man, whom a point of honor prevented from becoming a Protestant in his native country, had no scruples about his profession of faith at Stamboul. Certain it is that the English baronet soon rose high in the favor of the sultan, assumed the Turkish dress, conformed to the Turkish customs, and finally led against Austria a division of the Turkish army. Having gratified his pick by defeating the imperial forces in a sanguinary engagement, and obtaining a favorable peace for the port, Sir Ferdinand Armine doffed his turban, and suddenly reappeared in his native country. After the sketch we have given of the last ten years of his life, it is unnecessary to observe that Sir Ferdinand Armine immediately became what is called fashionable, and, as he was now in Protestant England, the empire of fashion was the only one in which the young Catholic could distinguish himself. Let us then charitably set down to the score of his political disabilities the fantastic dissipation and the frantic prodigality in which the liveliness of his imagination and the energy of his soul exhausted themselves. After three startling years he married the Lady Barbara Ratcliffe, whose previous divorce from her husband, the Earl of Falconville, Sir Ferdinand had occasioned. He was, however, separated from his lady during the first year of their more hallowed union, and, retiring to Rome, Sir Ferdinand became apparently devout. At the end of a year he offered to transfer the whole of his property to the church, provided the Pope would allow him an annuity and make him a cardinal. His holiness, not deeming it fit to consent to the proposition, 
Sir Ferdinand quitted his capital in a huff, and, returning to England, laid claim to the peeress of Tewkesbury and Armine. Although assured of failing in these claims, and himself perhaps as certain of ill success as his lawyers, Sir Ferdinand nevertheless expended upwards of sixty thousand pounds in their promotion, and was amply repaid for the expenditure in the gratification of his vanity by keeping his name before the public. He was never content except when he was astonishing mankind, and while he was apparently exerting all his efforts to become a king of Poland, a Roman cardinal, or an English peer, the crown, the coronet, and the scarlet hat were in truth ever secondary points with him, compared to the sensation throughout Europe which the effort was contrived and calculated to ensure. On his second return to his native country, Sir Ferdinand had not re-entered society. For such a man, society, with all its superficial excitement, and all the shadowy variety with which it attempts to cloud the essential monotony of its nature, was intolerably dull and commonplace. Sir Ferdinand, on the contrary, shut himself up in Armine, having previously announced to the world that he was going to write his memoirs. This history, the construction of a castle, and the prosecution of his claims before the House of Lords, apparently occupied his time to his satisfaction, for he remained quiet for several years, until, on the breaking out of the French Revolution, he hastened to Paris, became a member of the Jacobin Club, and of the National Convention. The name of Citizen Armine appears among the regicides. Perhaps in this vote he avenged the loss of the crown of Poland, and the still more mortifying repulse he may have received from the mother of Marie Antoinette. After the execution of the royal victims, however, it was discovered that Citizen Armine had made them an offer to save their lives, and raise an insurrection in La Vendue, provided he was made lieutenant-general of the kingdom. At his trial, which, from the nature of the accusation and the character of the accused, occasioned to his gratification a great sensation, he made no effort to defend himself, but seemed to glory in the chivalric crime. He was hurried to the guillotine, and met his fate with the greatest composure, assuring the public with a mysterious air that, had he lived four-and-twenty hours longer, everything would have been arranged, and the troubles which he foresaw impending for Europe prevented. So successfully had Armine played his part, that his mysterious and doubtful career occasioned a controversy, from which only the appearance of Napoleon distracted universal attention, and which, indeed, only wholly ceased within these few years. What were his intentions? Was he, or was he not, a sincere Jacobin? If he made the offer to the royal family, why did he vote for their death? Was he resolved, at all events, to be at the head of one of the parties? A middle course would not suit such a man, and so on. Interminable were the queries and their solutions, the pamphlets and the memoirs, which the conduct of this vain man occasioned, and which must assuredly have appeased his manes. Recently it has been discovered that the charge brought against Armine was perfectly false and purely malicious. Its victim 
however, could not resist the dazzling celebrity of the imaginary crime, and he preferred the reputation of closing his career by conduct which at once perplexed and astonished mankind to a vindication which would have deprived his name of some brilliant accessories and spared him to a life of which he was perhaps wearied by the unhappy victim of his vanity and passion sir ferdinand armine left one child a son whom he had never seen now sir ratcliffe brought up in sadness and in seclusion education had faithfully developed the characteristics of a reserved and melancholy mind pride of lineage and sentiments of religion which even in early youth darkened into bigotry were not incompatible with strong affections a stern sense of duty and a spirit of chivalric honour limited in capacity he was however firm in repose trembling at the name of his father and devoted to the unhappy parent whose presence he had scarcely ever quitted a word of reproach had never escaped his lips against the chieftain of his blood and one too whose career how little soever his child could sympathize with it still maintained in men's mouths and minds the name and memory of the house of armine at the death of his father sir ratcliffe had just attained his majority and he succeeded to immense estates encumbered with mortgages and to considerable debts which his feelings of honour would have compelled him to discharge had they indeed been enforced by no other claim the estates of the family on their restoration had not been entailed but until sir ferdinand no head of the house had abused the confidence of his ancestors and the vast possessions of the house of armine had descended unimpaired and unimpaired so far as he was concerned sir ratcliffe determined they should remain although by the sale of the estates not only the encumbrances and liabilities might have been discharged but himself left in possession of a moderate independence sir ratcliffe at once resolved to part with nothing fresh sums were raised for the payment of the debts and the mortgages now consumed nearly the whole rental of the lands on which they were secured sir ratcliffe obtained for himself only an annuity of three hundred per annum which he presented to his mother in addition to the small portion which she had received on her first marriage and for himself visiting armine place for the first time he roamed for a few days with a sad complacency about that magnificent immense and then taking down from the walls of the magnificent hall the sabre with which his father had defeated the imperial host he embarked for cadiz and shortly after his arrival obtained a commission in the spanish service although the hereditary valor of the armines had descended to their forlorn representative it is not probable that under any circumstances sir ratcliffe would have risen to any eminence in the country of his temporary adoption his was not one of those minds born to command and to create and his temper was too proud to serve and to solicit his residence in spain however was not altogether without satisfaction it was during this sojourn 
that he gained the little knowledge of life and human nature he possessed, and the creed and solemn manners of the land harmonized with his faith and habits. Among these strangers, too, the proud young Englishman felt not so keenly the degradation of his house, and sometimes, though his was not the fatal gift of imagination, sometimes he indulged in daydreams of its rise. Unpractised in business, and not gifted with that intuitive quickness which supplies experience and often baffles it, Ratcliffe Armine, who had not quitted the domestic hearth even for the purposes of education, was yet fortunate enough to possess a devoted friend, and this was Glastonbury, his tutor and confessor to his mother. It was to him that Sir Ratcliffe entrusted the management of his affairs, with the confidence which was deserved, for Glastonbury sympathized with all his feelings, and was so wrapped up in the glory of the family that he had no greater ambition in life than to become their historiographer and had been for years employed in amassing materials for a great work dedicated to their celebrity. When Radcliffe Armine had been absent about three years, his mother died. Her death was unexpected. She had not fulfilled two-thirds of the allotted period of the psalmist, and, in spite of many sorrows, she was still beautiful. Glastonbury, who communicated to him the intelligence in a letter, in which he vainly attempted to suppress his own overwhelming affliction, counselled his immediate return to England, if but for a season, and the unhappy Ratcliffe followed his advice. By the death of his mother, Sir Ratcliffe Armine became possessed, for the first time, of a small but still an independent income, and having paid a visit, soon after his return to his native country, to a Catholic nobleman, whom his acquaintance had been of some use when travelling in Spain. He became enamoured of one of his daughters, and his passion being returned, and not disapproved by the father, he was soon after married to Constance, the eldest daughter of Lord Grandison. End of Book One, Chapter One